we just come again as your people into your presence and Lord we pray that the important truths of your word will be truths that we understand clearly tonight and that each one of us will understand that we need to make a heart response to you that it's not enough to be part of a family that has faith it's not enough to go along with the rituals and traditions but Lord we have to make a personal commitment to you in our lives. Lord, help us to understand that. Help us to do that tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a a story that I found a, a number of years ago. It was a cold winter's morning and the bishop stood by the roaring log fire in his palace. His first son, a rural dean, came down for breakfast. Good morning, said the bishop. How did you sleep? Very well, father. In fact, I dreamt of heaven. Really? And what was it like? Wonderful. Just like home. The bishop gave him a kindly smile, and the two men stood by the fire, warming themselves. Soon, the second son, a canon, arrived and also stood by them. Good morning, the bishop greeted him. Sleep well? Marvellous, father, said the canon. I dreamt of heaven. You too, laughed the bishop. And what was it like? Wonderful. Just like home. So the three of them stood by the fire. After many more minutes, the third and youngest son arrived, bleary-eyed, He was the black sheep of the family, an actor, and a deep disappointment to his father. How did you sleep, my boy? asked the bishop. Dreadful, replied the youngest son. I dreamt of hell. Oh dear, said the bishop. What was it like? Just like home. I couldn't get near the fire for all the clergy. (laughs) Well, that does at least touch on what we're going to to look at tonight, because we're going to look at the serious side of the last judgment. And let me just begin here by making it absolutely clear that there is going to be a last judgment. At Christ's return, at His second coming, there is going to be a judgment. That's the clear teaching of the Bible here and in various other places. For example, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, either good or bad. There is going to be a last judgment. Now, some of you may have questions about this maybe beginning with basic questions about the fact of Christ's return, that there is going to be a second coming and therefore a last judgment. Now, my response to that is is quite simple. And that is, look at the evidence that there is for the first coming of Jesus and at what the purpose of that coming actually was. That Jesus Christ actually came and lived and died on this earth. I've said it many times before, but there is more evidence for that than for the existence of Julius Caesar. 
And as for the, the purpose of this, well, this is the faith part. That he came as God, God in the flesh, to give his perfect sinless life as the payment for our sin. So that each one of us might be able again to know God, to know as our Father through faith in Christ, a perfect, sinless, holy God who can have nothing to do with sin. But look at the evidence that there is. Historically and biblically and in the nature of mankind and the world around us. I mean, look at the way that evil throughout history and certainly in our time seems to be building and building towards a crescendo. Is it so difficult then to believe that the Jesus who came to give men an opportunity to come to know God, that this Jesus is going to come again to judge mankind on the basis of how they've responded to that opportunity. Surely it's not too difficult to believe that. Other people, though, maybe have a more particular problem, and that is along the lines of, you know, if I die before this second coming and this last judgment, then what's going to happen to me in the in-between time, in the intervening period? If you see, on the one hand, the Bible seems to talk about this and in terms of sleep. 1 Corinthians 15.20 Christ indeed has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And yet on the other hand, in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8, Paul talks about the period after death in terms of being absent from the body, at home with the Lord. So death is on the one hand sleep, on the other a matter of being immediately home with the Lord. How do we reconcile these two? Well, the traditional view, I suppose, is that when we die, we go spiritually to be with Jesus, truly and consciously to be in his presence. And then when Christ returns, we receive a new resurrection body and we then live in a new, renewed, recreated heaven and earth. But Stephen Travis, who's a a great authority on the the whole subject of the the last times. Here's a a bit of a variation on this that that I find very helpful. For you see, what he says is that when we die, we move out of the time system as we now know it, because this is part of the created order. And instead, when we die, we move into God's eternity. So you see then, the picture of death is sleep, This is given to us because this is helpful for those of us who remain behind and who have to deal with the death of our loved one. For it is a beautiful picture. It's a reminder that the Christian has as much to fear from dying as they have from falling asleep. But at the same time, all this describes is the physical side of what happens at death for us. The facts are, though, that spiritually, those who die go to be with Jesus. And this is where it gets interesting with Stephen Travis. And that as they then move out of time, there's a very real sense in which immediately they are there at the second coming. They're there at the last judgment. They're there in the presence of Christ, resurrection body, recreated heaven and earth and all that goes along with it. 
But though these are questions that all of us or some of us might have tonight, yet the question that we're looking at this evening in this passage, and indeed this is the question that's actually asked in different ways in the preceding chapter or so, the question that this asks is rather different. And it is, are you ready tonight? Are you prepared for that last judgment? Are you ready? So let's look at what Jesus says here and find out if we are ready after all, looking first of all at what's going to matter. And what's going to matter fundamentally is faith in Jesus Christ. That you have a faith in Christ as Savior and Lord. That's the basis of our salvation. That's what makes someone a Christian. Ephesians 2 verse 8, the words of Paul, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now this is, if you like, the wider teaching of the Bible. But then, the outworking of this faith, the proof, the the evidence of the reality of this faith, and this is actually what Jesus is concentrating on here in, in Matthew, the proof of the reality are deeds, are a life of faith that is consistent with our testimony, with our talk of faith. You see, what we have to understand is that when we become Christians, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, then that faith unites us to the life of Jesus and to the Spirit of God. The Spirit of Jesus, if you like, comes to live within us. Just listen to what it says in Galatians 2.20. It says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. But you see, what this means, if the life of Jesus lives in us, is that the life characteristics of Jesus should then be seen in us. Now, this means lots of things. But certainly it means that we should live a holy life. And above all, a life that is characterized by love. By that self-given, self-sacrificial love of Jesus. That we should love the people that he loved. The people that he came and lived amongst and gave himself for. That we should love them with his kind of love. For it's as we do this that we show that we are ready for the last judgment. That we can then look forward with confidence Rather than fear to that day. Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right. Come you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will ask him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will answer, I tell you the truth, 
Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. So you see, it might be possible to be a Christian and yet show little of Christ's love. It certainly seems sometimes as if it's possible. But when that is true, that person is at best a sick Christian. At worst, not really a Christian at all. Someone who's got a head knowledge maybe of Christian teaching, but not a real, true Christian faith that's about a heart relationship with Jesus Christ that leads to transformation, that leads to change in the way that you live. And this is maybe a bit of a side issue, but this lack of a life-changing relationship with Jesus, not only in my view has implications for the last judgment, no, it also has here and now implications in terms of evangelism. For I think one of the main things that turns the world off from the church is where they sense there's a lack of reality about the church. A lack of integrity in the way that Christians live their Christian life. Where we are, all talk, but no action. And you know, while I think it's wonderful, when as a church we're ready to say what we believe, we're ready to take a principled stand, I, I think that's great. Yet, you know, we've got to make sure always that we say the right things in the right way. And that everything that we say is backed up and demonstrated by Christ-like love. Or else we and our principal stands can become very cold and very unappealing. Let me just give you two contrasting examples here, taken from Philip Yancey's book, What is Amazing About Grace. And one of these is about a gay rights march in Washington that he witnessed. And, and this is what he says. He says, As I stood in the sidelines directly in front of the White House, I watched an angry confrontation. Mounted policemen had formed a, protect, a protective circle around a small group of counter-demonstrators who, thanks to their orange poster featuring vivid illustrations of hellfire, had managed to attract most of the press photographers. Despite being outnumbered 15,000 to one, these Christian protesters were lame, were were yelling inflammatory slogans at the gay marchers. Faggots go home, their leader screamed into a microphone, and others took up the chant. Faggots go home. When that got wearisome, they changed to, you know, you should be ashamed, shame on you for what you do. Between chants, the leader delivered brimstone sermonettes about God reserving the hottest fires of heaven for sodomites and other perverts. AIDS, AIDS, it's coming your way, was the last taunt in the protesters' repertoire and the one shouted with most ardor. We had just seen a sad procession of several hundred people with AIDS, many in wheelchairs, with the gaunt bodies of concentration camp survivors, I could not fathom how anyone could wish that fate on another human being. The other example is that of Edward Dobson, formerly 
Jerry Falwell's right-hand man. You know, they were founder together of the, the Moral Majority and the Fundamentalist Journal, so a pretty straight-down-the-line Christian believer. But Jerry, sorry, Edward Dobson left Falwell's organization to take on a pastorate in Grand Rapids in Michigan. And while there, he became concerned about the AIDS problem in his city. And so he asked to meet with the, some, of, some of the gay leaders in town, and he volunteered the services of the members of his church. Although Dobson's belief in the wrongness of homosexual practice had not changed, he felt constrained to reach out to the gay community in Christian love. Now, these gay activists were cautious, to say the least. In time, though, Ed Dobson and his church won the trust of the gay community. He began encouraging his congregation to provide Christmas gifts for people with HIV and to offer practical means of assistance to the sick and dying. And many of these Christians had never met a homosexual before. A few refused to cooperate. Gradually, though, both groups began seeing each other in a new light. As one gay person said to Dobson, we understand where you stand and know that you do not agree with us, but you still show the love of Jesus and we are drawn to that. I want to ask you, what do you think here is most evangelistically attractive? Where do you see here the love of Jesus? And which group would you rather be standing in the midst of on Judgment Day? But let me just try and make it clear again what I'm trying to say. Faith in Christ is the basis of our salvation. It is by faith we are saved. Without faith, we cannot know salvation and we stand condemned on Judgment Day. But that faith should work its way out. That faith should show itself in our lives in deeds of love. James 2, 17. Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And if our faith doesn't really show itself in the way that we live, then that should concern us. We need to deal with that. For we are either at best sick Christians, unhealthy Christians, or we're not even Christians at all. And that will matter on Judgment Day. Let's finish by looking at how much this matters as we look finally at, at what it's going to mean. What it's going to mean. What it's going to mean whether we stand among the sheep who go to the right and eternal life, or whether we find ourselves among the goats who go to his left and eternal punishment. And of course, as far as the, the punishment here is concerned, as far as being found among the goats is concerned, what we're talking about is hell for those who reject Christ. So what does hell then actually mean? Well, most of us have got a picture of hell, have we not? And almost invariably, it's a place of 
burning fire and everlasting torment. And that's understandable that that's our, our, our picture, our, our idea. Because this is a picture commonly used in the Bible to try and capture for us something of the horrors of hell. You see, I believe what we have to understand here is that a lot of the language that the Bible uses in relation to the last times, to heaven, hell, death, judgment, other related issues, a lot of this language is symbolic, is pictorial language. Now, that doesn't mean that what's being said isn't true. It doesn't mean that. Rather, what it means is that what it's designed to do is to give us a vision, to give us an impression of the key principles of what's to come, as opposed to an exact, detailed representation. It's like the difference between a portrait, which is an impression, and a photograph, which is an exact representation. And you know, the reason I believe why the Lord in the Bible goes down this route is really because he's trying to describe what for us as human beings is indescribable. He's trying to help us to understand what is incomprehensible. And that's not just my opinion. I believe that's what the Bible says. And particularly, you know, clearly in regard to the most important part of the end times, the most wonderful part of the end times, and in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, what it says, that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love them. You see, what we have to understand is that the same principle does hold true for what the Bible says about hell. For while it is most consistently portrayed as a place of burning fire, yet it's also called, Luke 8.31, it's called the abyss. 1 Peter 3.9, it's called prison. 2 Peter 2.4, a gloomy dungeon. You see, it's not a photograph. It's a portrait. It's language that's designed not to give an exact representation, but rather an impression of the underlying principle of the horror that hell is. But I believe that the clearest indication of what hell will be like is actually found in Revelation 21 verse 8, when it talks there in terms of being a second death. You see, what this is saying is that when we die on this earth, We die and are finished physically for this time. However, when at the last day we are judged by the Lord and when we are found to be without Him, then we will die spiritually. Then we will die the second death, the death that is for all time, for all eternity. And I believe what this will mean for us is that in our life then, in that eternal existence... Every remnant, every last sign of God's presence will then be removed from us. Love, compassion, justice, law, order, everything of God will be removed. And we will then be living in a pitiful, pitiless, unending chaos. And you know, there will be no hint whatsoever of injustice in this because in our lives we have said 
we don't want God. We've ignored him. We've rejected him. Well, finally, God is going to give us what we've asked for. He's going to give us a godless, loveless world. A godless, loveless eternity. You know, too often as Christians, that's just about as far as we go. We talk only about the negative side, if we talk about anything, of the last judgment. We forget that it's also about heaven for those who accept him and who live for him. I don't know why as Christians we don't talk more about heaven, why we don't think more about it. Maybe it's because we, we accept the world's caricature of wings and a heart, you know, and we've got an underlying fear that somehow it's going to be a bore. It's going to be a long, boring eternity. Well, let me assure you, from what I see in the Bible, heaven is going to be anything but that. For first of all, in heaven, at the last judgment, we are going to receive a new body, a new transformed body. And Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 15 that in this, the resurrection body of Jesus is our model. And what we know from what we read in the Gospels, when Jesus appeared to the disciples after the resurrection, what we know is that he was the same Jesus as before, and yet he was different. He was the same Jesus because those who saw him soon became convinced of his identity because of some familiar word or action. And yet, he was different. For none of them recognized him immediately. Because, you see, Jesus was transformed to live on that new, glorious, eternal level of the life to come. And that fullness of life, that perfection of life, this is God's goal, and this will be the goal that will be achieved by all his people. But not only do we receive a new body then, no, we will also live in a new world. For you see, the New Testament actually doesn't normally talk about going to heaven when we die after judgment. Now, the focus of the New Testament is on a new heaven and on a new earth. For example, in 2 Peter 3.13, Romans 8.21-23. And the picture seems to be there of a universe that has been transformed and perfected. Of a creation that's been at last set free to be what it's always been intended to be. Now again, the Bible doesn't describe this in precise detail. It doesn't, it uses more the, the language of poetry because basically, again, the glory that is to come is beyond our understanding. But not only will we live in a new world with a new body, no, as well as that, we will also there enjoy new relationships. New relationships first with one another. For not only, I believe, will we be able to recognize our loved ones, and I certainly believe that we will, for what we've already said about the disciples, about people recognizing the risen Jesus, plus the fact that there are named individuals in heaven. For example, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Matthew 8, 11. This gives me confidence in that. But not only that, but in that perfect place, in that time 
where there is perfect love, where there we're going to be able to love everybody. We're going to be able to get on with the people that before we maybe found it difficult to get on with. And you know, even better, they're going to be able to get on with us. Because we'll all be transformed. We'll all be different. God will have dealt with the problems in every one of us. So I say to you, can you think of the best time you've ever shared with somebody? Can you think maybe of the happiest moment you've ever had in someone else's company? And maybe that moment maybe only lasted for a moment, a matter of minutes. I want to tell you, what's coming after the last judgment in heaven is going to be an eternity, an unending eternity that is better every moment by far than that. And as for the idea that heaven's going to be boring, let me just demolish that finally in human terms, you know, if no more than that, just forever. Let me just demolish it. Because in Revelation 21, 26, talking there in terms of of what's to come, of heaven in terms of a city, Well, there it says, it says that the greatness and wealth of the nations will be brought in to that city. But nothing that is impure will enter it. Well, surely then, what this suggests is that because God is a creative God, because God is a God who affirms the goodness of the world that he made, so he then will welcome into his glory all that is good, in terms of human art and creativity, in terms of culture and inventiveness. You see, what's to come in heaven isn't going to be some black and white existence. It's going to be the most joyous, colourful existence you can imagine. But of course, most importantly of all, the life of heaven beyond the last judgment will be about a new relationship. A new relationship with God. Now, all this is going to mean we can never imagine. But again, the Bible resorts to poetry as it tries to describe the indescribable. We don't know everything, I'll tell you, but what we do know is that finally we will know him as he's always wanted to be known. What we do know is that then we will know a peace and a joy in our hearts that is now unimaginable. Yes, and what we do know is that then there will be an end to suffering, an end to death. For God will take us into his arms, as Revelation 21.4 says, and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death, no more grief or crying or pain, for the old things have passed away. Do you see then why the question Jesus is asking here is so important? Are you ready for this last judgment? Are you ready? Because I tell you, the way that you answer this question determines whether your destiny is heaven or hell. So we ask again, are you ready? Do you have a faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? Do you have a faith in him that gives you true assurance? Do you have that kind of life-transforming faith? 
Jesus asked the question, are you ready? My prayer is that each one of us tonight will be able to give the answer that ensures that heaven is our destiny. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you that you give us life through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, help each one of us to see tonight that the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. That it's only by his grace, only through our love and faith in him, that we can come into your presence, into your eternal presence. Lord, help us tonight to answer your call to salvation. Help us tonight by our response to you to be sure that we are ready for that judgment day. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.